Welcome to Bio, a podcast produced by the Biographers International Organization. Bio is devoted to promoting the work of biographers and advocating for biography as a genre with the support of biographers and biography lovers worldwide. I'm Bio member Sonia Williams in Washington, D.C. On each episode, we'll talk with a biographer about his or her work. This time, ESPN sports and culture journalist Justin Tinsley talks about his book, his first biography, of the late celebrated hip-hop artist known as Biggie Smalls. The book, It Was All a Dream, Biggie and the World That Made Him, was published by Abrams Press in May 2022. Fellow biographer and bio member Kevin Magruder interviewed Justin Tinsley via Zoom. And Tinsley began by talking about Biggie Smalls' Brooklyn-based significance. He was Brooklyn incarnate. He may be the most recognizable cultural figure that that borough has ever seen. Welcome. Thank you for having me. I'm looking forward to this discussion. I look forward to reading this book, and it answered many questions (laughs) that I had. I hope it did. (laughs) So I appreciate that. In this book, you reference several biographical projects related to Biggie Smalls, both documentaries, you mentioned the biography, Unbelievable. Mm -hmm. Can you talk a little bit about what this adds to our understanding of Biggie Smalls? Yeah, I hope this adds a worldview of him. And I think that was a large part of why I wanted to do this. And, you know, as you just said, you know, I say in the book, like there have been so many things written, produced, audio and visual on or about Biggie Smalls over the course of the last quarter century that I knew going into this project that it was going to be a daunting task to try to come up with something new to tell people that they don't already know about Big. And I knew I was going to be able to get certain nuggets and certain stories. Uh, You have to have the high level topics like meeting Tupac, beef with Tupac, and of course, how he lost his life and the multitude of conspiracy theories around that. So I knew that would be in there, but I wanted to humanize him in this book as much as possible. And I wanted to really unpack the decisions that he made throughout the course of his life. And I knew a lot of that had to deal with the world that was around him, hence the title of the book. Mm -hmm. So I wanted this to be as much of a biography of Christopher Wallace as it was a socio-political, socio-economic, and socio-cultural examination, because all of us were just a product of the world that's around us and the opportunities or lack thereof that are presented to us. I really appreciate that world that you create. I'm about 12 years older than he would have been. And I lived in New York for 30 years, from 1982 to 2012. Mm. And for a year in 1984 and 1985, I lived on Grand Avenue in Brooklyn, two blocks away from St. James Mm -hmm. and in that same block right off of Fulton Street. So I had that kind of personal reference. Yeah. But I appreciate you spend maybe about a third of the book on his childhood, his adolescence. Can you talk a little bit about what your sources were, what helped you to shape that part? Because I suspect that's what a lot of us never knew much about. Yeah. And I think that was important for me. And I don't know the exact pages or whatnot, but I'm pretty sure you don't get to Biggie's first album, which was Ready to Die in 1994, until about maybe 
page 180, 190 of the book. So I knew I wanted to unpack the earliest parts of his life from birth to maybe around like 14 or 15, because so much of what we know about Biggie Smalls's life is that Christopher Wallace is older than Biggie. You know, Biggie only was around for at the most five years, you know, just from, you know, underground to life after death. But I wanted to unpack that part of his life because I felt like we knew so much about his rap career and we embraced that part of his life in, in various ways. But I don't think we knew too much about his childhood, his his adolescent years, his teenage years. And, and this made him just as much as a Big Papa or One More Chance or a player's anthem or whatever the case may be. And I was very interested because I knew a good deal about his childhood, but I didn't know everything going in that I eventually put into the book. So this was about reaching out to people who, you know, one, grew up in Brooklyn around the same time, whether they really knew him or not, because I wanted to be able to paint what Brooklyn looked like and felt like and smelt like in 1984 or 85 or 86 and 87. And also a lot of it, too, was just understanding what was going on in the world at that time and like, what were the the circumstances that New York City was dealing with, you know, when Christopher Wallace was two years old and, and they're going through a financial crisis in New York and damn near went bankrupt and how this stripped so many music education, arts education and cultural education classes out of these schools, which in turn robbed their neighborhoods of their character in so many ways. And so I felt like this was just as important to the story as the other high points of his life. So I, I went through archives, whether it be New York Times, you know, New York Post, and I'll go through the LA Times. I love digging through the archives. I love calling myself an historian if I can, because I love history, because there's so many lessons to learn from history that allow us to tell stories in the present and in the future. So I signed the contract for this book maybe in January 2020, but I had started doing research before and I didn't write my first chapter until maybe October 2020. Outside of that, it was just all interviews. It was just like interview after interview after interview after interview. And, and how did you get those interviews? Because you talked with, it sounds like some of his close friends from childhood. Yeah, yeah. So you know, while I didn't get, you know, his mother or Faith Evans, I was able to get, you know, somebody like C.J. Wallace, who is the son of Christopher Wallace and Faith Evans. And we knew each other just through Instagram. I've written a story on Biggie and the topic of fatherhood maybe back in 2018. And somehow it got to C.J. and he reposted it on his Instagram stories. And we we basically just struck up a, a friendship from afar from there. And so when I told him what I was doing, he basically told me, he was like, whatever you need from me, because I trust you to tell this story, I'll do what I can. But, uh, you know, my very first interview for the book was DJ Mr. C. And this was like right after we had all been locked in the house and quarantined in like March 2020. And from there, I would just ask him, who else should I reach out to? And then I would ask whoever else, who should I reach out to? So, so then it becomes basically like a tree with limbs. So I got a lot of people. There was a lot of people I wish I could have got for the book, but I got a ton of great people. And what I'm really proud of is I put a lot of voices in those stories that really, you know, that may have been interviewed about Christopher Wallace, Biggie Smalls before, but I really think I, I amplified them in this book. And I'm, I am proud of that. When you look at that pivotal interview with Mr. C, 
why do you think he was so forthcoming? That's a good question. And, you know, my initial email to him, I just told him, like, look, I, I know a lot of things have been done on Big over the years, and I know I'm really coming out of the blue with this. You know what I mean? I know you don't really know who I am, but I want to – I sent him some, like, writing samples of mine. I sent him some things I've done in the past, and, like, I want you to know this is something where I'm coming as just an honest journalistic approach. I want to tell the best story possible, and, you know, I would love to interview you for this book. And whatever the case, he responded. He was like, let's set it up. And our interview was damn near three hours. So, of course, you know, the first couple of minutes is is him really trying to fill out, you know, who I am, what my intentions are. And, you know, I try to be honest and pure and forthcoming in every conversation that I have. And I think eventually he started to understand that, okay, this guy knows what he's talking about, because I knew when certain things happened in his life, I knew the years, the quotes and who produced songs and like, you know, parts of Brooklyn. He So I think he started to understand that, like, OK, he at least knows what he's talking about. And, you know, by the end of the conversation, it, it was it, he was like, yo, thank you for doing this. And he's like, yo, please do a good job. And once somebody puts that type of trust in you to tell a story about a person who holds a deep and special place in their heart, in their lives, you understand is like, all right, this is more than just a book. This is a piece of history on this world famous rapper, but he was somebody who was deeply loved by the people who knew him. And I, I took that, you know, not to quote Michael Jordan in the last dance, you know, I took that person and I wanted to do it right. Yeah. And that, and that really came across the love that he had even before he was famous. For sure. What comes across is he was well liked in the community, no matter what he was doing. Yeah. And, and I was really surprised when you said you didn't talk to his family because I thought it's a realistic portrayal of his family life. Yeah. How were you able to do that? <laughs> I mean, that's just a, that's just a product of what I like to believe is just my commitment to research. So I would mm -hmm. read books, I would watch mm -hmm. documentaries and, you know, you know, take little things of like, Oh, country music was very, very important to Valletta Wallace when she was growing up in Jamaica and country telling is really all about storytelling. And so you start to connect the dots like, OK, this makes sense why the Notorious B.I.G. was such an amazing storyteller in his music, because he grew up around music then his entire life that was about storytelling and that was about painting the circumstances of your environment. And then, you know, you just start asking people, you, you ask them like random questions like, OK, what was Big's favorite meal? Like, well, when he was on the block, when he was hustling. We always had to go by the chicken store to get him some wings or he liked the, you know, uh a chopped cheese or whatever the case, you know what I mean? So you start understanding these stories and it helps you humanize people. He's not just somebody who stood on the corner 24 hours a day selling drugs. He's somebody like he was very affable. Like people felt very comfortable around him once he engaged with you and like, okay, well, I guess that does probably make you a pretty good drug dealer because you know how to communicate with people. And so you start getting these like little stories about him that you can like put into a book and it, it gives you an opportunity and the avenue to paint the entire picture of who the man was and not just the highlights of who he was and i think i think that's what all of us want when our life story is told for us to be seen as real people and, mm, yeah and that definitely comes across coming into reading the book and having written a biography i recognize some of your challenge yeah because i think a lot of people think they know him yeah. And yeah. there is information out there about him. 
but they probably don't know a lot of what's in that first third or yeah maybe half of the book and and i really appreciate that thank you when you look at his role in terms of hip-hop because yeah. it's so popular what do you want people to know about his place in that world you know i, I want them to know that so much and I, like you said i think people know this but then when you present it all laid out a familiar story starts to become new again once you start that you can piece these things together in back to back to back to back fashion. So, yes, we know Biggie Smalls, you know, was an incredible artist. We know he was very successful for his time here on Earth. But then you start to piece together like this was going on in his life. These were the struggles that he had while he was at the height of his career. You start to piece all of these stories together and then you really realize like, wow, I didn't realize so many things happened in such a short amount of time. And that's been a, a good chunk of the feedback that I've gotten from this book. Even people who were around and were adults when it happened, like, I forgot so much happened in such a short amount of time. I forgot that when Biggie Smalls was the biggest rapper in the world in 1995, that Tupac was actually locked up in 1995. And that's where you know, their friendships began to dissolve. And this happened in 90 at the top of 96. But this also happened in the spring of 1996. And all of this stuff was going on in such a short amount of time. You know, like I say in the book, it'll never cease to amaze me that Biggie Smalls died. Christopher Wallace died at 24 years old. Tupac Shakur was 25. Like it'll, it'll never not shock me because they did so much in such a short amount of time. I like you know, Ready to Die came out in September 1994. Biggie was dead by March 1997. That is a two and a half year window that, you know, a quarter century later is still being written about in terms of my books. There's still documentaries out right now that are examining who killed Biggie and Tupac. Yeah. You know, that like that that fascination with him and his life and, of course, Tupac and his life as well. It's never going to go anywhere. So. The daunting task of taking on a folk hero like Biggie Smalls is something that did scare me at first. I was very scared. Like once I signed the contract to my book and I was like, huh, I've already spent a good chunk of this money and I can't give the money back. So I got to write a book. So it better be a damn good one. And I just knew that, like, we always say we want to humanize somebody because that that's the best way to tell a story. But. I knew that would be the best way to tell this story. Don't just focus on the super, super highs and the super, super lows, but like what happened over the course of his life that made him who he was, both as a famous artist, uh, but also as, as a private individual. So I got over my fear of that. I don't want to say early on, but I got over my fear of that when I was writing a book and it was just like, you have to make this different from everything else. I don't want it to be a who done it, like who killed him. I, as I say in the book, if you watch enough documentaries, you watch enough YouTube videos, you can come to the conclusion on your own, which is more than likely the right one. But I didn't want it to be just about that. I didn't want it to be just about his falling out with Tupac. I wanted it to be an examination of him and the worlds that he lived in, whether it be in Brooklyn, New York or Raleigh, North Carolina or on the road as a musician or his final moments in Los Angeles and where he wanted to take his life. I felt those concepts and those parts of his life were just as important, if not more important than the, the stuff that has been sensationalized over the last quarter century or 30 years. With that relationship with Tupac, what allowed you to 
present such a complicated relationship with confidence? You know, I knew going into this book that, of course, you got to talk about, you know, why they fell out. You got to talk about, you know, the tragic way they lost their lives in the drive-by murders. But I knew going into this book, I didn't want this just to be a Biggie and Tupac book. Because Tupac, his life and his music and his story have lived separate from Biggie and vice versa for Biggie. Mm -hmm. But I felt like, and this is something I really wanted to change in the book, and I believe I mentioned it in the introduction, is like, they've been seen as these symbols of two Black men who had a falling out and it was negativity. There were a lot of things said that were, you know, really graphic and in a sense, mainly by Tupac, but they were kind of symbolized as beef and tragic death. And yes, that is part of the story. That is absolutely part of the story. But like, if we're going to focus on that, then people need to know the backstory of this friendship and how intense it was, how deep it was, how pure it was. And it may have only been a year in terms of their, their life, but you have to focus on that year just as much as you focus on, I don't know, the last 18 months of Tupac's life and the last 24 of Biggie's. But I felt that's been done very unfairly over the years. And I didn't want my book to be that. So I wanted to paint them as a symbol of black male friendship that unfortunately was fractured by what I believe a lot of elements beyond their control. And so I knew going into the book, I wanted to do that because I've had these thoughts about Tupac and Biggie for years. And they've just been two subjects over the course of my life that I've just been fascinated beyond belief with. And as I got older, I started to see the situation for what it was. And I, I always told myself, even when I did freelance pieces on Tupac and Biggie, even when I did stories on Tupac and Biggie for the site that I write for now, Anscape, formerly The Undefeated, I wanted to present a complete picture of them. And so I knew when I got a chance to write this book, I was like, OK, I can really flesh it out now. And was there new information that allowed you to do that? Yeah, I, I think there, there's always going to be like new stories and like people who are around them, even if it was like little stuff like Tupac would be filming Above the Rim in 1993 in New York. But after he was done, he would come to Fulton Street and kick it with Biggie. And like basically they would just sit on the block and just smoke weed and drink, you know, 40s and just eat food and just like laugh and joke like all day. Like Tupac would call. Biggie's house and talk to Valletta for a little bit and see how she was doing. And you be like, yeah, is Christopher at home? And like, there was a genuine friendship there. And I, that's never portrayed when you hear Biggie and Tupac. You just think beef and death. And unfortunately, Black men are more than just how they pass mm -hmm. in a tragic sense. There's always a story. And there's always a beautiful part of the story behind it, which makes the ending so tragic. Yeah, definitely. In terms of other elements of your process. I know you said that it was dawning once you signed that contract, yeah. but then as you moved into it, did you feel that you kind of hit a flow and what yeah. allowed you to get there? Um, one thing that helped me, and this is just more like inside baseball, but for every chapter that I did in the book, I think my first draft may have like 26 chapters. And I think the book ended up with 23, but for every chapter I did, I did an outline. And sometimes those outlines would take me all day. But the outline would help me because if I ever got lost while I was writing, at least I have, you know, the outline. It's kind of like basically using a GPS in your car. You know, you may need it for the first couple of steps. And then, you know, once you make the left turn on Main Street, you're like, oh, I know where to go from here. But sometimes you just leave it on just in case you get lost. And that's the same thing with the outline. 
And it really helped me because I started to see how the story was coming together. And I was like, okay, I like what I did here. I may shift it a little bit once I get to this part, but then I'm going to come back for this. So I was very confident in all of the interviews that I had. I had over hundreds of hours of interviews and I had a Google Doc that had up to 700 pages of, of notes and links to, to this story from 1991 or links to this story from here and there. And this is a general synopsis of what the article is like. So I could always find it in my Google Doc. So I'm like, I was confident in the work that I put in before I started writing. Now I just had to convince myself like, okay, you can do this. Like you have all the pieces to the puzzle. You just got to put the puzzle together. So about halfway through, I let my wife read it a little bit. She was like, wow, this is like really good. You might need to like work on this section a little bit more, work on this. She was like, you're really painting him like a person. And he's not just the larger than life individual that we've come to know over the last 25, 30 years. And and she's very honest too. She won't just tell me she likes something just because it's me. So her feedback meant a lot. And I just started to be more confident in myself. Like, yeah, it's always going to be scary because this is your first book. But I knew the subject matter. So it wasn't like I was writing about something I didn't know. And it, and, and look, there were times of self-doubt even after that, because that's the whole process of writing a book. It's a very lonely process. But I knew that like I could tell the story the right way. And I still believe I told the story the right way. Not saying that this is the say-all, end-all, be-all for projects on Biggie Smalls, because Lord knows it won't. But yeah, it was just one of those things you got to look yourself in the mirror and be like, man, you're built for this. So. Is there one person who you wish you could have interviewed or one document that you wish you had access to? Obviously, I wish, you know, Big was still here. You know what I mean? So I could have got him. But realistically, I would have loved to have gotten his mother and just to hear her tell stories of like Christopher, the the elementary school kid. You know, just those type of stories and faith, of course. So but somebody I really wish I, I could have gotten was like Jay-Z, because everyone knows Jay-Z and, and Biggie were cool. They they collaborated on some songs together, but that was a really, really close friendship. And one that really was formed in the last year and a half, maybe two years of Big's life. And I really wish I could have gotten Jay for the book. Now, to be fair, I was on a, a a Twitter space with him on Big's birthday, May 21st, and he did say he was going to check out the book. Now, whether he's read it or not, I don't know. I, you know, Jay-Z's a busy man, but I would have loved to have spoke to him just about who Biggie was as a friend to him, because I knew what he was as a collaborator and how intense their rhymes were when they were going against each other. But like, what was this guy like when they went to the Bernie Mac concert when they first met? You know, little intimate moments like that that really would have painted their friendship. One thing I wonder, and I know that Jay-Z isn't the center of the book, but yeah. when you look at his trajectory and what he, his path yeah, and what happened with Biggie, what do you think enabled Jay-Z to seemingly sidestep a lot of that drama? I think it was just, you know, right place, right time, wrong place, wrong time type of concept. You know, Jay-Z had been rapping for a while and he had a line on this song called This Can't Be Life that came out in 2000. And I'm going to paraphrase it, but he was like, everybody doing them, I'm still scratching on the block. Like, damn, I'm going to be a failure, surrounded by thugs, drugs, and drug paraphernalia. And he's talking about how Nas had a classic album drop in 1994 and Big was doing his thing in 1994. And he's still wondering 
okay, like when am I going to get my shot? But you also got to realize in 1994, Big is becoming a superstar, but this is also when, you know, Tupac is shot at Quad Studios in 1994 and how impactful that one moment. I think you can honestly say Tupac shooting at Quad Studios changed the course of rap history forever because then that that's when the seeds of what became known as the quote-unquote East Coast, West Coast War began. And Tupac was uh, unfortunately a major face in that, as was Biggie involuntarily as well. So you had Bad Boy, you had Death Row, you had Puffy, and you had Suge Knight. Jay-Z really wasn't the major player that he would become. So what allowed him to sidestep it was he was never really involved in that friction. Yes, he was directly around it, but he wasn't involved in that. So like he wasn't a target, thank God. And I think once hip hop saw Tupac get killed, once hip hop saw Biggie get killed, it really forced the entire genre to look inward. Like we just lost arguably our two, not even arguably, we just lost our two biggest names within the span of six months of each other. We have to recalibrate how we're moving here because we can't keep looting. And unfortunately, you know, rap has continued to lose talent at a very young age. But I think Jay-Z himself saw, he was like, I know what I need out of this game and it can't be nonsense like that. I can't allow myself to get swept up in things of that nature because I just lost a really close friend of mine because of that. And, you know, Jay-Z has this really great story of how they were hanging out in 1996 somewhere. And this is when the height of the Tupac stuff was going on. And, you know, Biggie and Faith were having their issues and, and it was playing out publicly. And Jay-Z is with Biggie and they're about to go into a nightclub and, Biggie gets to the door and be like, you know what? Nah, I changed my mind. I don't want to go in there. And Jay is like, what? No, nah, let's go in there. We're not scared of those dudes. We can do it. And Biggie was like, nah, I just don't want that energy around me. And that's something that Jay-Z has said he's taken with him over the course of his career. It's like, be responsible with the energy that you have around you. And of course, when you look at Jay-Z and the evolution of his career, that he's taken his career far beyond just music, which, you know, he, he can still make it a very high clip. But I think he learned a lot from, you know, that tragedy. And that's losing one of his really good friends in Christopher Wallace, a.k.a. Biggie Smalls. I was curious if you got other book projects in the pipeline. But yeah, I'm constantly thinking about what this second book will be. Now, to be fair, my wife and I, we're expecting our first kid in January. So I, I won't be signing on to any book project until after I get into the swing of fatherhood. You know, so I got a little bit of time. That was journalist Justin Tinsley talking about his first biography, It Was All a Dream, Biggie and the World That Made Him, published by Henry Holt and Company in May 2022. This interview was recorded on August 19th of this year via Zoom with fellow biographer and bio member Kevin Magruder. To learn more about bio or to hear other episodes in our podcast series, please visit our website, biographersinternational.org. I'm bio member Sonia Williams in Washington, D.C. Alani Hodge created our theme music. And until next time, thanks so much for listening and have a wonderful day.